Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Gary Greenberg, childhood sexual abuse survivor, activist, and founder of the Fighting for Children PAC, also known as Protect New York Kids, which was pivotal in helping New York State pass legislation in 2019 that extended the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse in both civil and criminal cases. Gary is here to speak with us about his experience as an activist and the long road he traveled to help pass this significant legislation helping to provide some deterrence and accountability for the 150 kids that are sexually abused in New York State every day. Welcome, Gary. Thank you for having me, Terry. I want to start with what brought you to your activism. More than 30 years ago, you were sexually assaulted at age 7 by a hospital orderly. Can you talk about how that came to be? Well, my father was a patient at the Cohoes Memorial Hospital, which is in in Cohoes, New York, and the hospital is closed now. But my mother took me over there to, uh, you know, visit with my father, and he had been there about a week. And an orderly there uh, by the name of, we didn't know the name at the time, but since have learned who the orderly was, uh, Louis Van Wee had befriended my parents. And so uh, one... The one day when we went over there, uh, he asked to take me on a tour. You know, the x-ray room was um, right next door to my father's room. And, it, you know, it was back over f- actually 50 years. And um, so he, you know, proceeded to take me into there and then um, said, oh, well, let's go up the stairs here. There's more. And me, the stairs led to a, um, it was like a boiler room where there was an elevator shaft and then another door that went outside actually onto the roof and where there was like um, air conditionings and things like that. So, um, you know, when we got up there, he, he proceeded to try to get me to, um, you know, he said, oh, I want you to touch me, you know, in my private parts. And uh I kicked him in the shins and tried to run away, actually. And uh, he chased me, and he, he, he got me as I was going out the door. And then he brought me back, and he was really angry. So he uh, took me outside and um, held me up and over the ledge of the, uh, actually over the ledge of the uh, roof and said, if you don't do what I want to do, I'll drop you. So um, went back, the same thing. You know, he said, oh, let me touch, you know, your your penis and uh and i said uh no kicked him tried to run again this time he uh took me and um held me over the open elevator shaft which was um i think three or four floors but i went way down you know as a seven-year-old kid and he held me you know my feet and then just let me dangle over head down and he said i'll let you go you're gonna do what i want you to do so then uh, I you know, went back and, and I let him touch me. And then um, he wanted me to touch him. And I said, no, certainly, you know, I was never going to do that. And uh, so he, he, he said, okay, and sort of uh, 
figured I think that, you know, as time was going on, so he wanted to get, go back. So he gave me some money, uh, took some change out of his pocket and said, here, and uh, if you ever tell anybody this happened, I'll kill uh, you and your sister. Because I had a, 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 a nine-year-old sister who had visited my father um, and didn't come that day, fortunately. Um, who knows, she might have taken her too, because we found out later he did abuse boys and girls. And so he gave me the money, and, you know, I left the hospital. I remember leaving. Uh, my mother had a Buick with a top down. It was a beautiful day, and, you know, I took the money and threw it out in the front of the hospital uh, lawn, and I said to myself, you know, I knew I was shocked, and, you know, uh, uh, of course, and uh, I just said, what, what that shouldn't have happened you know that was awful was this during one day or over the course of several days one day one day i met him for a half hour of my life the half hour of hell when he brought you away did you get a sense that it was wrong oh i knew it was wrong i knew it was wrong right away and uh and did you believe his threat that he would hurt your sister I did. Uh, my parents, he said, you know, I'll kill your whole family. And, and I was angry. About it. I remember being angry. And, um, you know, I wanted, said I would get revenge against him someday. At what point did you tell someone what happened? Well, what, what happened is that um, about six weeks went by, and then my mother said that I wasn't, kept pestering me, that um, I wasn't, uh, you know, acting my normal self. I was an outgoing child. And happy kid and and so I was had gone in and I wasn't wanting to go out of the house and not not take showers and things like that so she kept pestering what's wrong what happened so I finally told her how long after the incident did these behaviors manifest themselves about six weeks she kept you know it started like after six weeks and a couple weeks she pestered me so maybe like two months later I I told her, and, you know, she told my father, and they immediately went over to the hospital. I mean, there was no, uh, they got in the car right away and, and went over there. And, um, you know, the hospital said they knew about him and uh, wouldn't give his name, but they were aware, and they had fired him. And uh, so, you know, my father was even madder. He went to the police, and the police said, oh, forget about it. You know, juries don't believe kids anyways. You're just wasting your time. You know, he can fill out a complaint, but uh, the DA, you know, probably won't even take the case because it's just a waste of time. And what? forget about it, it ever happened. What city and state? Goals, New York. What year, general decade was it? 1967. Did your parents just drop drop it then uh, because of all the advice? They went to advice? a lawyer and the lawyer said, yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, we could sue, sue but, you know, it's, it's juries, uh, the same thing. You know, they usually someone have to go in and testify. And uh, might be, you know, just traumatizing more. And juries don't believe this kind of stuff happens. And so, yeah, they they didn't want to take the case. And basically, my father at the time said, "Well, you know, uh, if you if you ever need help, you get it." And he would ask me time to time about it. You mean help as in uh, mental health therapy? Yeah, you see a doctor. My mother told our uh, pediatrician at the time, and he said, "You know, we'll monitor it. You know, see." Uh, how he's doing and things like that. So, yeah, they did, uh, um, which is very unusual. My parents weren't on top of things, and my mother was a teacher. And uh, so uh, thank God that they, they did do that because a lot of uh, uh, victims don't, won't tell their uh, parents. And if they do, uh, the parents don't believe the kids. At some point later in your life, did you get therapy? 
Uh, yes, I did. Yeah, I did go to about 15 years of uh, therapy every day. So when you were an adult, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, when I got my, uh, I think it was like 31 or 32, I went for therapy. In that interim period, how did you respond emotionally and physically, and how did it impact you academically? I think that yeah, it did. Looking back at it, certainly uh, the anxiety I realize now, um, and, you know, the doctors said, you know, of course, I uh, suffered from uh, um, post-traumatic stress and uh, attention deficit. And, and uh, I, you know, looking back and when I got a little older, I, I started drinking a little bit. And so, um, um, you know, that and, yeah, it really had to, um, fearful of people and, and, you know, fearful of uh, just, you know, people not trusting anybody. and. Did that impact your relationships? Yes, it did. Yeah, very much so. All kinds of romantic friendships, work relationships? Yes. Yeah, I had a difficult time with that. And even going out, you know, I didn't like to go out too much and uh, sort of became a prisoner in my own room. What was it that motivated you to finally seek help by a therapist? I, I think I didn't like the way my life was. Um, no, I had a lot of some successes, and but I, my personal life, I didn't, you know, that I couldn't form relationships or they won't last, and that, um, you know, things didn't seem to always work out for me, even though I seemed to, uh, you know, put a lot of effort, and, you know, I, I just realized that it was a trust issue, you know, and so, uh, you know, I st- uh, sought out treatment. What kind of impact did that have on you, having the therapy? Oh, I, I think it was a, a big help. And, um, yeah, the therapist was uh, very knowledgeable. And, and, you know, I did a lot of uh, uh, guided imagery and um, deep breathing and massage and just all different types of therapy and uh, to get that out of my system. What, if anything, did accountability mean to you, and how did that evolve over time? Well, I, 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 about um, in 1996, I was watching the news, and they showed a picture of this Van Wee, and that's when I first learned his name. Um, and, you know, I said, this is the guy that abused me. They said this person had uh, abused over 300 kids in the last 30 years. So I 60, you know, I started my head and right away I said, that, you know, even before they said that, I said, this, they, you know, they said this person was arrested for child abuse. And they said, so anybody in Cohoes, where I was abused, Waterville or Troy, which are nearby cities, to call the Troy police. You know, if you've been abused and you think this person had abused you, please call. So I did. And the detective there, uh, Steve Weber, uh, had me come in. They interviewed me. and. They, um, the Van Wee was in jail, so they had one of the um, corrections guards at the jail talk to him. You know, did you ever work at Coho's Hospital? Did you abuse kids there? And so he admitted it. You know, yes, I, you know. And so he, he was very talkative to them at the time, you know, and he was telling them all sorts of where he had abused kids. And, and so they had asked me to go forward and go public and ask other people to come forward, which I did. And about 125 other people called in. 
uh, after that and said that then we uh, had abused them, whether it was in the Water of Elite Park or whether it was, he did a lot of abuse at the Cohoes uh, Bowling Alley, at Detroit Lansingburg Bowling Alleys. He hung around, he was in the uh, drum and bugles, you know, to meet parents and kids. So all sorts of phone calls they got. And then every one of those cases though, they told me and they told the uh, victim that we can't do anything criminally for you or civilly because the statute of limitations were up. But, you know, we can get you therapy, we can get you help. So um, that really bothered me, and that start, really started my activism. How did you know so many other victims of this person? Did you come into some support groups? Uh, most of them, the police told me that 125 had called, and that they did, a lot of them wouldn't give their name because they said, um, they're just calling, you know, to say that he abused them and, you know, they want him locked up, don't ever let him out. But, you know, they never told anybody, you know, they're married, you know, their husbands don't know or, you know, so uh, they didn't want to come public or come forward. What was the age range of the group of people who were victims that were interested in accountability? Were, were there like from 20s to 50s plus? Or? Uh, no, it was actually from about, um, I think, six. Uh, to uh, in the 60s, yeah, 50s. So the younger victims were they the statute of limitations had expired for them as well. Two victims who, um, well, one they already had, another one came forward, and they were able to charge Van Wee on the two cases, and um, you know he's been in jail for uh, over 22 years. Wow, since the mid-90s. Since 97, we've been able to keep them, even though the state wants to release them on a conditional release. In this state, if you serve two-thirds of your sentence and um, you follow the uh, directions of the prison of taking courses and, and, and you're a model prisoner, then after two-thirds of your sentence, uh, you can be eligible to be re- conditional release. And, in 2016, they wanted to release him, but uh, the other victim, uh, who was one of the other two who actually hit the, the case put him away, Kelly Whitman, and I spoke out and uh, uh, demanded that he, the state not release him, and uh, he hasn't been released, uh, but he could be released at any time. You have to have proper housing, and um, he had proper housing at his sister's in Cohoes, but after we came forward, some people, you know, we said he was going to be released to, to his sister's house in Cahoes. So many people, there was an uproar in Cahoes, you know, the whole uh, community uh, went to the mayor, and then the mayor has made a statement they don't want him. And the sister got um, said, if you let him, you know, don't let him in here. So she refused to take him, said she wouldn't, didn't want him anymore. And then the Troy police uh, the chief at the time uh, wrote a letter saying, you know, we consider him one of the most dangerous uh, uh, predators uh, ever to, to be around this area, and, and we don't want him here, and we don't want him out, and you shouldn't let him out. So he hasn't been let out, but he may be let out. He has a 30-year sentence, approximately? Yeah, he could get out in, in 2026. Uh, I think that's the longest they can keep him under his... Uh, you know, his sentence, and but he'd be in his 80s, so. Um. What's the typical uh, procedure for including victims' statements with regard to release, or is it, would he be released, like, on probation, or would they just well, they, free? On a conditional release, I couldn't actually write letters, or, or I did, though. I spoke up, 
and let my uh, voice be heard. And at the time, you know, I had my pack. So, so if you're a victim, the actual victim of the crime that he's sentenced on, like Kaylee Whitman, you can, uh, she can write letters. She can go to the uh, every two years. He has a probation hearing. She can go what she has, and she goes and uh, involves herself in making sure that uh, the you know the parole board is aware of his. Uh, you know, that he's a really a scumbag, and um, so. Do they give that a lot of weight? I think they do uh, at times, uh, but the state seems to be in this, uh, recently in this, um, getting in this mindset that pri- they should let prisoners out that are older because they feel they're harmless now, and, you know, it costs uh, sixty, eighty thousand 80000 a year to keep these older prisoners in health cost, and so it's cheaper for them to let them uh, out they can let them out and then they supposedly monitor them with braces and they have to report the uh, ankle braces and report the parole officers and things like that. But, you know, I've known in, of instances where they break the ankle bracelet and go out and abuse kids and be timed there. You know, the, I mean, it does let off a warning, but, you know, they see a kid, they rip the thing off and abuse the kid. Be time the police find them, you know, a day later, the kid's been abused or raped. So uh, I feel that these, they should stay in prison. I don't care what their age is. Van we should never be let out. Even when he's through with his um, time in 26, if he's still alive, we'll, f- we'll fight it by uh, demanding that the state go to, uh, um, you know, in- institutionalize him, which they can to- if he's determined to be insane. So if any, or, you know, a threat to the community, anybody abuses 300 kids isn't going to be, should be allowed out of prison because I always say in prison, of course they're going to be model prisoners because there's no kids. So, uh, <laughs> What are your views towards reparations or the ability for a prisoner to rehabilitate? So your reparations would be making sure that he stays in prison. That's what you would call accountability. Exactly. Where do you draw the line with regard to whether someone is capable of rehabilitation and how to assess it? So like you said, 300 victims, if, if it was just one victim, would that make you think differently? Um, I think with criminals, you have to be very careful, particularly felons. There are notorious uh, prisoners in the state who have uh, uh, actually, you know, they fooled the uh, state. And so, you know, they they can be model prisoners in prison and uh, get out and, and just go back to their old ways. So for violent felons and sexual offenders, uh, you know, I, I don't think they can be rehabilitated. The thing is to prevent a lot of these, once they get to that stage, that it's too late. But, you know, when they're children, they're acting out. And I think that's the time that you can uh, reach them and, and try to, because uh, many of them were, have lived, you know, abused themselves. And, or they've been not just sexually, but mentally abused or, or uh, you know, physically abused. And they just, it messes them all up. So the time is way before they, you know, when they're younger and um, to try to get them help. But, when, you know, if someone commits, a, you know, a, sells a marijuana, of course you can rehabilitate them. And some of the, you know, less uh, 
felon crimes, but sexual offenders in general, once they've abused, I don't feel that you can, particularly if they abused it like this family, just went out in the community and abused strangers or just went to a park, saw a girl and raped her, or, you know, or like myself, had, went over to see my father, the, you know, there's a kid, I'm going to get him. With that mindset, you cannot rehabilitate these people, even, no, 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 no how long they're in prison. They're just not, I guarantee if Lewis Van Wee gets out, the first thing he sees a kid, he's going to get all those instincts back and he's going to try to sexually abuse that kid. When you speak about prevention, that also intersects a lot with the domestic violence laws that are out there. There is a book uh, that was published recently called No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. She was one of our guests. And she's a journalist who did a pretty comprehensive overview of domestic violence uh, as intimate partner terrorism in the United States. And she focused on a few cases and also interviewed people who were in prison and men who were in study groups, basically, for rehabilitation. And one of the things that I found really striking is that the men who were in prison disproportionately almost all of them had experienced child abuse by witnessing domestic violence. And so it was usually the father who was abusive towards the mother. And yet for all of these men, for the most part, they contextualized that relationship or reframed it in a way where the mother was the provocateur and the basically the perpetrator and the father was the victim. Mm-hmm. And and that really informed their subsequent behavior as adults and their attitude towards women. So I think those kinds of complex evolutions of how you know how we respond to abuse for these kids when they were young, they were victims, but somehow as they grew, they distorted what they observed and experienced. No, I agree with you. In a lot of cases of domestic violence. Uh, the victim in, has suffered from um, child sexual abuse. I think like 80%. It's a very high number. So the, the two do coordinate with each other. And uh, if you're a victim of child sexual abuse, or like you said, if you've seen uh, violence in your house, uh, you have a much higher chance of, uh, of either being a victim or being the, the one who does the you know, domestic violence. Yes, unfortunately. So at at what point did you decide that you wanted to be part of making change in the laws governing criminal and civil prosecution of child sexual abuse? You know, my whole life, just about since I've been abused, I I felt that, you know, that when I was told that as a child or seven-year-old that nothing could be done, that that angered me. And then um, again, back in uh, 97, um, nothing had changed. And so I decided um, at that point I was going to get involved. I did uh, try to change the laws then and to no success. And, you know, I I did off and on uh, work on it. But, you know, every year, you know, we went to Albany to the Capitol and we lobbied and and tried to get the the legislators to pass laws to, you know, to protect kids, to change the laws, you know, the statute of limitations. So you had more time to report it and, you know, you had more time either criminally or civilly and they didn't want to listen, particularly in the Senate. Um, 
was the you know the Republicans didn't want to allow any lawsuits because of you know the church and and insurance companies and you know the assembly didn't want to uh, do anything with the statute of limitations. Uh, they felt that uh, you know could unfairly put more people in jail that weren't didn't need to be put in jail and you know as time went on people forget so. You know, I decided after doing this for like in 2016 for doing it for 15 years or 16 years that that was enough. Had to take a different look at it. And uh, I said the only way we're going to get these laws in, the Child Victims Act and tougher laws to protect kids is to go after the legislators that were not supporting us. And that's what I did. And we went in their uh, districts. And, you know, I led the way in rallies and uh, informing press conferences and informing uh, the, the public. I donated to specific candidates that were, were supportive of us. And in 2016, the Democrats, uh, my candidates, we did win, uh, have the majority in the Senate, 32 to 31. But the IDC went over with the Republicans, and so that kept everything the same. And then 2018, I tried to make an, a, a compromise with the Republicans. I sat down with uh, Majority Leader Flanagan at the time, uh, told him, you know, it was t he had to do something this year. You know, I even, we, we came up, Senator Young and I, who's a Republican from Western New York, came up with a... Uh, a bill that would have created a compensation fund uh, for all victims, and uh, Flanagan wouldn't bring it to the floor and for a vote. So, it, you know, at that point, um, I decided that since I had, had did everything in my, uh, I tried to be fair to the Republicans. Uh, you know, I took a lot of heat from other advocates for even going over and talking to them because they thought that in 2018 with Trump and with, uh, you know, the, the, the political winds were going for the Democrats so we could take out mostly Republicans, the senators. So, but I gave Flanagan a chance, and at that point uh, I decided that we had to get rid of Flanagan as majority leader and get rid of the senators who year after year came up here and just didn't do anything. So we did that and uh, we, we flipped the Senate. And uh, so, so let's dig, a, dig in t into that a little bit. When you first got involved, you said it would, took about 15 years, approximately 2001. And then at some point in 2016, you said I need to, or maybe 2015, uh, I need to really make big change. And what you did is you put your money where your mouth was, or where your mouth is, and you spent $375,000, is that right? Yes. Of your own money to start fighting the children pack. Was that a hard decision to make? It was, you know, it was very hard, and, um, you know, I used my retirement money, but, I, 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 you know, I talked it over my family, and, and, you know, I always wanted to to bring change for so, you know, victims would have their day. We were fighting for a look-back period, uh, not just change the statues for criminal in the future and, and, and civil, but um, a look-back, so prior victims who never had their day in a court could you can't go back criminally, unfortunately, because the Constitution doesn't allow it. But you can go back civilly if the legislature will 
will allow it. They have to pass a, a law saying that victims can go to civil court, Supreme Court, and file a case against their uh, perpetrator and or institution that was involved. And, uh, you know, that was always the downfall in the Senate here in New York State. And so, um, yeah, I always I felt that it was time and that it would be worth it to... Uh, the only way that we were going to do this, you know, we could come up here for the probably for the next 10, 15 years and uh, and keep coming here. That nothing was going to change. Initially, who were your the biggest opponents of the legislation, the Child Victims Act? Uh, Senator DeFrancisco and ba- Senator Bonacek, and uh, th- these are Republican senators. Uh, I, those are, I think, the two main ones, uh, Andrew Lanza from Staten Island. Did they represent a certain group of organizations or? Well, they took a lot of money from insurance companies, and they um, took a lot of money from the church, over $2 million. And the Boy Scouts. Those three special interest groups. Yes. And the Hasidic Jews were involved in, in fight, Orthodox Jews. Wow. Were involved always in, in fighting the Child Victims Act. And, it, you know, um, so it, it, it was year after year that they, they, they would get, you know, DeFrancisco and wouldn't allow it to come to a vote in, in, the, in the Republican conference. So um, Initially, did you make any effort to go to their special interest to have direct conversation to try to influence them? I did. I met with the Boy Scouts and uh, uh, the chief counsel from, uh, actually from Texas flew up here and we had a meeting and, uh, and so, I, you know, the church and, um, you know, I understand their point of view. They don't want to be sued. Um, but on the other hand... Uh, they didn't do anything wrong. They wouldn't have right, to worry. They did a lot wrong and, uh, you know, I've had uh, the bishop here uh, uh, in Albany and I have, have had discussions uh, on that. And, I, and, you know, I've tried to talk to them that they have to not only accept, you know, that what they did was wrong, which I think that he does, but, you know, they have to, uh, they're going to have to pay, you know, face the piper in court because they did hide and and the hierarchy back then, and some of them are still around. Dolan is one of them, and uh, they did uh, lie, and they did uh, move uh, priests around trying to cover it up, and so that just made the situation worse. And so they they deserve to, to be brought to court, and, you know, I have no problem with that. In its initial form, who were the biggest supporters of the bill? I think that, um, of course, the survivors and victims and um, you know, advocacy groups across the state that deal with child sex abuse. And, and so um, for me, a lot of, uh, of out-of-staters actually um, committed to me. And not only did I put my own money up, but I raised money. So there was a lot of uh, victims uh, who had once lived in this state and moved out who helped me. And... So there was a lot of, you know, it was a real grassroots effort. At some point, you hired Justin McCarthy, a 22-year-old lobbyist of the New York Senate, to help with the PAC. What role did he play in moving the legislation forward? Well, Justin uh, had a lot of experience in the Senate, and uh, we were, we were uh, you know, I wanted, as I said, to go to the Senate, uh, Flanagan and other Republican senators, and say, you know, let's 
get this done. Let's, you know, this really isn't a, a political issue. You know, you guys have, uh, and women have, uh, have been obstacles to helping uh, protect kids. And so we did go, like I said, to Senator Young, and she helped form a bill, so Justin was very involved in that. And uh, we had an agreement, and the um, Senate was supposed to, Senator Young called me up and said it was going to be brought out of committee. I think it was um, the last day of the session uh, in 2018, and they were going to vote on it. They were going to pass this uh, fund. And then uh, it never was voted on, and Senator Bonacek, they said, got sick and went home. If you want to believe that, you can. But I don't. I believe he purposely walked out of the committee because in the Rules Committee, you have to have uh, so many votes, otherwise it won't pass. It had the he was, So he was so against this that he went home, and so it didn't pass. And like I said, at that point, I was so furious uh, that, uh, and Justin and I were furious with the Republicans for uh, pulling that stunt. So, uh, you know, I announced right soon afterwards that uh, I was going to use, you know, go out in 2018, um, do everything that I could to get rid of Flanagan and the Republican majority. And that's what I did. I went around the state and held 16 rallies. I went into these senators' districts, and we beat them. And, and, and I, you know, Eleanor's legacy helped me, and the uh, New York Progressive Action uh, Network, uh, who helped... Uh, you know, was very active in the state, Bernie Sanders and, and AOC and uh, a lot, uh, Williams, uh, Johnny Williams, and with the district attorney in Queens just won, uh, they supported um, the progressive candidates. So they were a big boost, and we went around and we beat them and we knocked them out. And uh, I saw polling numbers that Eleanor Legacy did and others that um, in these districts that the number one issue why people went into their, into, when they were going into the booth, child sexual abuse and the way that the senator had voted on or, or, or didn't vote on was a number one issue. I know like Anna Kaplan, I believe, won on that. Uh, we beat a lot of, um, she's a senator from Long Island, and um, other candidates won because of rallies that I, I had a late rally down in uh, Westchester County for Pete Harcam uh, with uh, Tish James, the Attorney General, and he just barely won that seat. And I believe that that rally had a lot to do with him winning. And uh, we knocked off a lot of incumbent senators. And so um, they, they deserve to be knocked off. And uh, as I say, I hope they stay in the political wilderness for a long time, the Republicans in the state, for the way they didn't. Uh, act to protect kids. A lot of kids got abused in the last, um, you know, 15, 20 years that could have been prevented if they had just passed the Child Victims Act like we wanted. You also talked about the IDC. Could you share with the listeners what the IDC is and uh, your role in flipping them as well, flipping those seats? Uh, well, the seats? Independent uh, Democratic Conference was formed um, like 10 years ago, and uh, I think it was Jeff Klein who, who originally had formed, uh, you know, had disagreements with the leadership of the D Democratic Conference at the time. I think he had, and him and Governor Cuomo, uh, you know, formed an alliance uh, with John Flanagan and Dean Skellius before Flanagan to um, basically, you know, Cuomo liked it that the assembly and, and was um, 
Democrat and the uh, Senate was Republican. So, um, but that all changed uh, in 2018 when Trump won because um, the IDC was keeping the Republicans in power here in the Senate. And so people were, were being informed that, you know, they, they, that they were working, they said they were Democrats, but they were actually working with uh, um, senators who were supporting Trump and Trump policies. So that we, um, you know, no IDC and um, I think True Blue New York were formed and um, went after Klein and other, and other uh, Maricel Alcantara, uh, who I did support originally back in uh, 2016 and helped her win. But, you know, the, the IDC let me down because, uh, you know, I had an agreement with Maricel and, and Jeff Klein that, that the bill would come to a vote in 2016. It would be brought to the floor, and Jeff Klein and the rest of the IDC had the power to do that, and they didn't do it. So, um, you know, the Democratic uh, progressives and uh, uh, others were fed up with them because of their, you know, pro-Republican uh, uh, agreements, and, and they they would took, um, you know, as part of being an alliance with the Republicans. They didn't actually join the Republicans, but they did get chairmanships, and they did get bigger offices, and that, so they were supportive of, uh, you know, Trump and Republican uh, uh, ways in, in that, and so they were thrown out because people, once you inform, just like the Child Victims Act, once you inform people uh, that, you know, Jeff Klein's, you know, the leader and he's he's working with Flanagan to keep the um, the Republicans in power, you know, people get mad. And this, the much the same was with the um, Child Victims Act. Once we went in and we had news conferences and, and ran robocalls and, 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 and took ads out and all sorts of things to inform the public what was going on, they got mad, you know, and so they flipped it. Is it fair to say that what eventually led to the successful passing of the Child Victims Act, Act legislation is the financial resources that you devoted to be able to flip these elected officials, as well as, like you said, have robocalls and, and um, all of this awareness and brand. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, without flipping the Senate, you wouldn't have a Child Victims Act today. Uh, the, the, the Republicans staying in the majority and the IDC, you, they would have never brought it to the floor. And the thing that mind boggles me most is that um, when it did come to the floor, every Republican voted for it, including John Flanagan, the Child Victims Act with a one-year look back. So um, they knew, you know, that uh, they got the message in 2018. So um, that was, uh, um, you know, like I've no, that was their own doing. And uh, if they had taken votes on legislation like the Child Victims Act or other, uh, you know, school bus legislation down in New York, which ran out, the speeding, and other, uh, they just wouldn't take votes. And they thought they were going to uh, um, be able to, you know, not take positions, and that would be okay. But, you know, the public sent them here to take a vote, and they didn't, so they got thrown out. And they got thrown out. They lost a lot of seats, and they got sent a message. Uh, other legislators uh, should be uh, should get the same message that if you don't if you're not going to come here and protect kids, particularly protect kids and do what's right, 
then uh, you're going to get, you can go home and do something else. What does the bill say, the Child Victims Act say? Well, the one that passed um, uh, changed the statutes on criminal from 23 to 28, so um, uh, if you're abused, you would have until 28 to come forward. Like I said, I don't feel that's long enough, so I'm going to work on getting that changed. I feel there should be no statutes on, uh, if you're sexually abused, you that impacts your whole life, and whenever you're ready to come forward, you should be able to bring criminal or civil charges. And uh, civilly, the, the bill did raise the statute of 55, so a person would have to 55 to bring a civil suit. And then most important was for prior victims, uh, was a one-year look back, so anyone that was abused in the past um, whatever it is in a state, you know, 50, 75 years can go into a civil court and bring a action against uh, either their perpetrator uh, or their uh, inst- the institution that was involved. And that, the bill was signed on February 14th, so that um, period will start six months after that. So uh, August 14th to uh, 2019 to August um, 14, 2020, any victim in prior in the state can go into a court and sue their, you know, bring a lawsuit. But that only allows victims who have financial resources to be able to get a remedy, yeah, potentially well, a remedy. That's why I was so strong in the fund, and I still am, and I hope to convince the legislature to, uh, you know, not only to change the statutes criminally, but to provide uh, some type of fund or, or uh, to give victims who cannot go to court, either they're perpetrator is dead. Um, we have cases where they move to foreign countries uh, and are hiding. So, you know, you can't, there's, you can't bring them to court, or if you could, there's no sense. And that, you know, in a lot of these, um, you know, if you live in inner cities, poor areas, rural areas, poor rural areas, you have 40, 50% better chance of being abused. And these people have no money. And, and you know, they're, 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 and their perpetrators are family members, neighbors. And so these people, deserve to have justice too so um, and a lot of victims it's it's not easy to go to court I mean it is a court you have to go in and testify and uh, it's stressful and it's a long process you can have appeals that can last five ten years so a lot of victims do want to go through you know want a fund where they just you know I think victims want they don't want money they want justice and then, you know, they want help uh, in their therapy or so they can get therapy. A lot of victims in the state can't even afford to get, they don't have health insurance or they can't afford. Uh, therapy's expensive and, uh, or, you know, they need medicine. Medicine's expensive. Uh, victims of today are, are helped with the, New York State has a victim's assistance program where if you're a victim, you can, you know, apply and, and if you meet the requirements, uh, you're helped. So, um, I believe that past victims that are suffering deserve help, too. Just to clarify what you said, there is a public fund for those who meet the statute of limitations, but it's not available to victims within that when you look back? Well, there's a fund for victims of crime that are committed, you know, today. Oh, I see. So the fund doesn't apply to these? No, to these prior ones, no. And it's not part of the bill, no. so you're trying to get it to, to right. be amended. My point is, if you're a victim today, you can get this help. But if you were a victim 20 years ago and the help wasn't available, you're out of luck. You know, you can't sue anybody. Who are you going to get? You know, you can't get any justice that way. 
you know, you're out of luck. You, you don't get justice. You don't get help. That isn't right. Well, my intention was to give justice to every victim in the state and to help victims. I mean, uh, the state was lax in helping victims of child sex abuse because of the, not only the Senate, but, you know, the, uh, it just wasn't uh, a priority of legislators for many years. And uh, it's only with the recent publicity around uh, the church and the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and Weinstein and more and more victims coming out uh, that they were sexually abused or, or raped women. And, and there's a lot of, you know, Me Too and all these uh, attorney generals in the country are investigating um, the church. So it's, it's, it's more than the church, but all this publicity now, you know, is bringing awareness. So, and that's why we get, we, you know, one of the reasons we were able to flip the Senate, but every victim has to have, be able to get part of that justice. So it's not um, why if you were abused by a priest and, or a Boy Scout or, or, or an Orthodox Jewish and you can sue an institution, you know, a little league or boy, whatever. Um, yeah, a lawyer will take your case. They'll put the money up front. And, and then they'll, they'll put the time and effort knowing that, you know, they're most likely to be recoup that. If your abuser was, you know, uh, a poor, uh, you know, individual uh, with no uh, home insurance or, or there's no way that you could ever get any, you know, they're not going to take your case. They're not, they're refusing like that or they want you to put up $25,000 you just made me think of a really good idea. I'm sure this is not unique, but um, in terms of insurance, I mean, obviously any kind of abuse, but in particular child sexual abuse, is a public health issue. Are there any kinds of databases, either in New York or across the country, where you have victims um, register and there's some sort of monitoring of their progress, you know, what their economic status is, what their educational attainment is, and their job status, et cetera, and whether or not they are being hindered by their previous uh, abuse. Oh, oh, certainly. I, there are studies that um, show that if you're a victim of child sex abuse, you have a 100% better chance of being an uh, uh, alcoholic. You have a 100% better chance of committing suicide. So, so, it, so in theory, New York State, you have an estimate of however many victims there are, right. and you could put a number to that cost. And about 220,000. There are studies that during a lifetime, those, if the person was a victim and the state is spending, you know, that about two, you know, 220,000 dollars in uh, per. Um, that seems per low. Victim. That seems low given the opportunity cost of what they could have achieved, like you were saying about your own experience. Right. So is there any way to maybe create some sort of, let's say, financial instrument like insurance with car insurance? If you're going to buy a car, you have to pay for car insurance. If you're going to ha have uh, institutions where you're working with children and you have access to children, so like schools, Boy Scouts, like you said, mm -hmm. the church, they have to buy insurance. <laughs> to have money to pay out in case there's um, these kinds of yes, infractions. No, that's a good point. And they have changed laws. To, they have the mandatory report now. So, uh, um, you know, they, if it does happen, they have to report it. If someone comes to them and says, you know, I was abused or, or even in schools, you know, they have to report it. 
Do you feel like what's happening in reality is effective? There is this mandatory reporting requirement. Do you feel like from the conversations you've had with victims and advocates that the people who are quote unquote trained actually are effective in either identifying or reporting when they suspect abuse? I think it has improved greatly. Yeah, I think it has over the last 10, 15 years, yes. What else would you like to see happen? Well, um, you know, like I said, the fund for every uh, um, um, victim that can't participate in the civil part of the look back, go to court, and then, you know, change. I think we need no statute of limitations and, you know, keeping, uh, I don't think any sexual offender, uh, a serial uh, rapist or a serial child abuser should ever get a um, conditional release in this state. And I think that should, law should be changed. You were also part of the recent success in getting Aaron's Law passed. Yes. Could you talk about that briefly, what it is? Aaron's Law will teach uh, K through 8, um, one hour a school year, mandatory uh, of um, you know, child sexual abuse and, and what is appropriate touch to children, what isn't appropriate touch. And if you are inappropriately touched, so someone inappropriately touches you and, and you feel that you, know, you were inappropriately touched, that you immediately report that to uh, uh, either a teacher, your parent. Um, and and that'll, what that'll do is um, found in states that have passed it, because it's been, New York just passed it, 37 states, but other states have had it going for seven, eight years. And when they do teach it, they do get um, kids to come forward and report. You know, my uncle, you know, uh, put his hand under my, uh, you know, skirt or whatever it is. You know, the next door neighbor was uh, taking pictures of me. And, there, so and there's a higher incidence of reporting, but this, well, is there then, a deterrence? And, well, yeah, you could be, because of that, and then, you know, that person was prosecuted uh, and, and they're taken off the street. And so we, but it we, doesn't deter people and stop them, disincentivize them from engaging in those acts. Uh, no, but it, it does get the, the perpetrator that was doing that uh, behavior you know, off the street. And, and, and so it goes back to when I was, uh, when my parents went over there in 67, if the police had done, uh, been today and, uh, and, and this person was prosecuted uh, and, and uh, then I guarantee you 300 kids and I it wouldn't have been abused and probably, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, I, I've had discussions with um, the Rensselaer County uh, advocacy groups over there and they tell me that they know victims of Lewis family who have committed suicide, who are homeless, who, who became alcoholics. Um, a lot of that could have been prevented. Of course. And so th well, that's why Aaron's Law is so important because you know, you can, you know, maybe that if you can get that perpetrator early, you can, because the average perpetrator victims is 125, 150 uh, during a lifetime. So you take them off the street. Yeah, take them off the streets. And then on the, and also the aspect that you can uh, get a child help at an earlier age. So, you know, the, 
they understand that it's okay to come forward and tell someone. And we live in a society where there's so much help now, and, and so you can get that uh, child help and immediately, and, and they won't suffer a lifetime of shame, guilt. And, you know, you can reduce, uh, if you get the child help at an early age, you can reduce, you know, alcoholism. And, and as I said, the average age is about, the average expense for a, it's 220, 250,000, you know, per person on alcohol abuse with the child who was abusing or being alcoholic, loss of work, uh, you know, some of them have to go on disability, and, and so you could reduce that, and, you know, in the long run, you reduce the incidence of child sexual abuse, you're going to reduce the amount of money that has to be spent on uh, health, you know, on uh, treating in these people. To be clear, does the law only impact publicly funded educational institutions? So like religious schools would be exempt, I'm guessing? Uh, well, they're not exempt, but they're, they're not. Uh, the mandate is for public schools. And next year, we're going to uh, work on um, private schools to do the same. Great. So are there any other legislation that you're working on? And what, what's ahead for your PAC? Um, yeah, there is a... Um, Brittany's law and domestic violence, uh, I think it's a big issue. And so we'll be working on that, uh, those issues, and, and trying to convince the, the legislature to uh, you know, pass these laws because they're much needed to, uh, to protect uh, you know, a lot of domestic violence um, incidents um, aren't just adults. Uh, they have a big impact on uh, kids, and uh, there's incidents where um, Brittany's law is named after a young girl who was uh, basically executed for trying to help her uh, mother, who was also executed by a new boyfriend. Um, these are brutal cases that can be prevented, and uh, we have to do everything uh, we can. So. So Brittany's law is the um, legislation for creating a, a, a registry for New York State? Yes, for uh, felons that um, committed felons. So uh, when they do come out of prison, um, they are on lists. And, you know, if uh, someone wants to get in a potential relationship, um, they can look on the, the you know, list and see specifically, uh, you know, this person was arrested for beating their child, this person killed their child, this person, you know. I mean, you can go on corrections now, which I believe uh, um, um, Dale Driscoll, who is uh, granddaughter, uh, the law is named after her daughter, uh, did go on the corrections and did see the boyfriend's name, but it only just said, uh, uh, I think, that he was in, um, involved in a um, felony. It didn't give specifics. And when she asked uh, the boy, new boyfriend, uh, you know, what, what, what did you do? He said he was in a bar room altercation and hit somebody, so they charged him with a felony, which was a total lie. So if anybody wants to support your PAC or join forces with you in these upcoming bills that you're proposing over the next uh, year, uh, how should they get into contact with you? Uh, I have a um, website, um, protect, uh, www.protectaltogetherprotectnewyorkkids.org. Um, I have um, Fighting for Children PAC on Facebook. 
G.A. Uh, Greenberg is my own, uh, uh, you know, I do tweets and um, protect New York kids on the tweets. And um, so you can reach me that way. Or, uh, and, and we need all the help we can get because uh, it's uh, quite a fight to, uh, to, you wouldn't think it was such a fight to, to move the legislature and individual legislators to, uh, but there's a lot of powerful interest groups that do not want to, um, these laws, and uh, they can be from, um, as I mentioned, uh, insur insurance companies. We in Aaron's law, the New York State School Board Association was against the Aaron's law because uh, of the mandates. Um, and, and some of the teachers' unions, uh, not so much this year, but in the past, they felt that the mandate would uh, cause too much um, um, work for, and set a precedent for other mandates. So, I mean, it's a lot, people don't realize that some of these laws are so beneficial to them, but you know, they're like shocked when you tell them, like, the school board was against Aaron's law, or, you know, uh, we had the, uh, you know, the Boy Scouts is against the Child Victims Act, or, so um, we need all the people we can get to, uh, to fight back. Well, great. So we're at the point of our conversation, uh, the engendered questionnaire, which I've adapted from Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the fight to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake? Uh, I, I think uh, at, what's at stake is humanity. Uh, um, we're, we're living in dangerous times, and uh, people better wake up and, uh, and realize, uh, you know, they say history repeats itself, so uh, um, don't be so apathetic uh, because it isn't happening next door that you know about. It may be happening in the house but, um, or uh, somewhere that you don't know about, but pay more attention to what your surroundings and what's going on. What gives you hope? Oh, I, I think what gives me hope, there are good people still out there that, um, that, that want to do the right thing. And, um, and so, um, you know, you always, you, you have to find those people and uh, participate. And that's what gives me hope. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence? Um... Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, just become more involved uh, in, in the issue and, and, and learn about it and, um, and pay attention to what's going on um, because it's, an important, uh, it's important what's happening in our world, especially in the United States. Anti-Semitism is up and, uh, you know, uh, just white supremacy is, uh, is, you know, on the rise and... Uh, some people think it's okay for this type of behavior, and so uh, we have to rise up and, uh, and defeat it because it is evil behavior and it must be stopped. Thank you so much, Gary. I Thank wish you, you the for best. having me, I Gary. wish you the best of luck in your advocacy, and I hope to be a part of it. Yes, look forward to fighting together for better laws. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna 
k-a-n-d-u-i-t.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Thank you.